Um, it's great to be here. Um, I was looking at these mystery gifts that, it, that we have on the table, and it says on there, Today I am excited about everything. Now, um, I hope that you won't be too excited about the first part of my presentation, which is about medical inflation. I don't think there's much to be excited about. Uh, but certainly second part on low-cost benefit options, I think there's a good deal to be excited about. I think that, um, as Paresh has indicated, uh, I think there's, uh, there's a different thinking from Council on low-cost benefit options, and this uh, desire to have a framework creates an opportunity for the whole industry. And it's certainly something that I hope that we will grab with both hands, because again, if you look back over time, as Roseanne has indicated, this has been in discussion for many, many years. Um, and it also deals with a whole lot of things that has been raised by the industry. I think, you know, the Competition Commission is actually a very good opportunity for, for us to take stock of what is happening in South African healthcare. Um, I think a lot of very good uh, submissions have been made to the inquiry. Um, they're all published. I would encourage you to, to read them. So at first, I'm just going to talk through, through our views on medical inflation um, and give you an overview of that. Um, it's all coming out of that report, um, so you can see a lot of detail in there as well. Um, but I think what was encouraging to me, reading all of the submissions by other players, is that actually the themes are pretty consistent. When you look at the, the, um, the submissions, people are identifying the same things leading to medical inflation. Um, and what that means is it has some implications then for how one designs a low-cost benefit option. Because obviously if inflation is high, then even if you can launch something at a low cost, it might not, might not remain low cost over time. So the, I'll go right to the bottom line effectively and start out by saying that this is the, the average inflation, claims inflation rates experienced in discovery. Um, it basically starts in the period 2008, but what you observe by 2009 going up to 2013 and you'll see their claims inflation over this period of 11.3%. Uh, um, and there's a difference between that and what, uh, what uh, tariff increases were actually given by Discovery, if you look at it on an overall basis, which was 7.1%. And the big question always in people's minds, um, and I think it's an obvious question when you look at it, is why is that the case? Why do you get such a big difference? And the extent of that difference is significant, and it has also been increasing over time. So a big part of what we want to do is to unpack that and say, this is why you get this result. Um, but at the outset, I would like to, to emphasize, and you can see a lot of detail on this in, in our submission, is that all of these numbers are plan mix adjusted. Now, that is very important. Um, I think when you look at medical scheme contributions, you have to look at inflation in the context of plan mix adjusted numbers. If you don't, don't adjust for plan mix when you price, you will get into trouble. No medical scheme can, can not price for plan mix unless they have only one option. And the reason for that is quite simple. An average medical scheme member doesn't exist. Nobody in a medical scheme pays the average contribution and nobody in a medical scheme claims the average claims. So I heard somebody make a memorable comment the other day saying that the average human being doesn't exist. An average human being would have one boob and one ball. Um, and I'm sure that might be... <laughs> which is true, of course. Um, that might be the first reference to boobs at an actuarial conference, but... <laughs> I think it does make the point. The average doesn't exist. And averages are influenced by who's in an option and how that changes over time. So, the, and medical schemes have to price every option. Every person in the medical scheme pays their options contribution, 
which means that you have to look at what is the average distribution of people across the options last year and how did that change to this year. So you have to adjust for plan mix, otherwise you get into trouble. So this is all plan mix adjusted. All the numbers I'm showing you is plan mix adjusted. And when you look at the 4.2%, effectively there are demand side drivers. So that's how people get more and more sick over time or how there are more sick people in the population over time. There are supply-side drivers, and that's adjusting for how the sickness levels of people. How do doctors service those members? So new technologies, how many more admissions are there per, pe per, per person with a defined uh, sort of sickness level? Then, of course, there's tariffs. So if it's different from inflation, why is it different? Um, and there's different dynamics there for hospitals and for doctors. And then finally, it's also affected by other factors. So when, the, when you take the claims side of things and you then roll it up into what you need to charge in the contribution, um, then obviously non-healthcare expenses and financing requirements, solvency requirements become very relevant. So claims inflation, um, what we've done is to actually um, compare it to CPI, but to compare it to CPI as at round about September of the previous year. Um, and it is, it's important when CPI is a bit volatile, um, because September of the previous year is basically when schemes would negotiate their tariffs. So when you compare the tariff increase in the following year, that was at the time when you had CPI information, that's what you agreed at the time CPI was, and that's what then gets taken up into, into tariffs typically. It's not always the case that September is the month, but it's more or less at that time that schemes uh, negotiate their tariffs for the following year, and that's, that's just a view of what CPI was over this period. Um, and you can see that 2008 to 2009, that was obviously a, a year of high CPI, um, but then how did it play out thereafter? It came down to around about the 6% level with, with uh, more recent increases. Now, what I'm showing you next is the tariff agreements that Discovery had um, on average with all service providers in the, in the industry. And you will see there, if you look at it, and particularly on the right-hand side, it shows the average um, uh, from 2008 to 2013, um, it's basically the bottom line is that tariffs is not the issue. So if the Competition Commission is going to have a whole lot of interventions on tariffs and its negotiations of tariffs and um, you know, bargaining and all of that, it won't solve the problem because it doesn't address at all what causes inflation to be higher than CPI. There are reasons why it is on average higher than CPI, and the main reason for that is doctor tariffs. And the main reason for that in turn is because of uh, full reimbursement for PMBs. So in order to get doctors to agree to a network, we have to pay them more than what the NHRPL tariffs would have been um, if we had a standard tariff system. Um, hospital tariffs have been around about CPI, perhaps a little bit higher in some years, a little bit lower in others. Um, and there's some other tariffs that have been a bit lower than, than CPI. But overall, it's basically the same. I think that's the bottom line message. The demand side effect is big. So if you look at this, that's the main reason why you have excess medical inflation. Um, and the supply side on top of that is, is relevant, but it's not the main reason. So if you look at this whole period over time, you'll see that tariffs was 7.1% relative to inflation of 6.7%. Um, the demand side on top of that was accounted for an additional 2.9% of inflation. Um, and then on top of that, you had supply side of 1.3%, and that gave you 113 overall, which is why 
people have to pay 11.3% higher for medical um, for their for their healthcare contributions on an annual basis over this whole period, and that's obviously a significant difference. So let's talk about demand side inflation. Um, I think to this audience the, the, the point will be obvious, but obviously claims increase um, as you get older. Um, it's interesting to me when I look at this audience, uh, you'll see that the people in the first two rows have a much higher average age than the people at the back. That's because I have to see. <laughs> but, you know, the distribution is always, the distribution is everything. Um, this is how, within Discovery, uh, the, the age proportions change from 2002 to 2013. Um, and again, if you, if you think about these things in actuarial teams, that's a very significant shift. So maybe just to play the animation effect again. But you can see that there's fewer and fewer members at the younger ages, more and more members at the older ages, and that obviously has an inflationary effect. On top of that, there's also chronic prevalences, the prevalence of the top 10 diagnosed conditions per thousand lives in the industry, um, and in discovery, our experience has been no different. So there you see the chronic prevalence increasing over time. I think some part of that effect is also people being aware of PMBs and registering for, for chronic uh, conditions. The point is still that they claim for it. So in the end, it does have an inflationary impact. Um, but it does go beyond that, um, and I think adverse selection is something that the industry is really struggling with. Um, and I'd encourage you to also look at your own data if you, if you are working for a medical scheme, but we all know this effect that uh, uh, younger people opt out of medical schemes. It might be as a result of affordability, you know, that people's income increase with increasing age, um, or it might just be lack of information or people just... Uh, uh, you know, they're just not aware of what the consequences are if they don't have cover. Um, and of course, at the higher ages, medical schemes are overrepresented um, relative to the population. And we see that playing out in many different ways. So there's adverse selection by gender. Um, so what you see there is the proportion um, of uh, female uh, uh, members in medical schemes. Now, what you would obviously expect is that that increases at the older ages proportion of female members because male mortality is higher. But what you wouldn't expect is that it increases at childbearing ages unless there's adverse selection. So in other words, more females join medical schemes at childbearing ages uh, than males, disproportionately so. Um, and that obviously has an implication if they then do have children, um, which fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, they do. Um, so what you can see here is uh, the duration um, of members on a scheme before their first maternity admission, um, and 45% of all maternity events are for members who have been on the scheme for less than 12 months. So I think it is also when people start planning families, that's when they join medical schemes. I think that might be true in general, um, but sometimes it is probably a bit more deliberate also uh, and, uh, you know, anti-selective in that respect. Um, what is also interesting about that is that 26% of these leave the scheme within 12 months of the maternity event, of course, if they, if they and their babies are healthy. So you can see how these sort of effects play out over time um, and how that would increase medical inflation. Um, we also see adverse selection uh, by uh, claimants for biologics and for expensive drugs. Um, so this is uh, a graph showing uh, the, the, proportion, the duration on the scheme for people who claim for these very expensive um, biologics for musculoskeletal conditions. 
Um, and you see there, 14% who claimed for biologics had been in the scheme for less than one year. Um, and you see the same for interferon, uh, that's a drug for multiple sclerosis also, where 17% who claimed for that um, was in the scheme for less than one year. Now again, you know, these sort of patterns you wouldn't expect in a sort of normal environment where everybody are, are part of the, uh, the scheme. So th there is a summary, and there will always be a summary. Uh, there will always be a trade-off. There is a trade-off um, between two things, and it's a, it's a decision that society has to make. Um, the one is guaranteed acceptance to a medical scheme, um, and the other one is anti-selection associated with voluntary membership. So we always have to make a decision between those two factors and say, what do we as society um, support? You know, what are medical schemes there for? Is it all about access whenever you choose to have access, or is it also about affordability? If it is voluntary, um, then anti-selection happens, and when that happens, basically people pay more for, for their cover. So yes, you have the right to join at any point in time, but everybody ends up paying more for that. Um, and that's something that we have to decide. And I think we're now arriving at one of those points where we have to make that decision effectively as a society in the context of low-cost benefit options. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But demand-side inflation has certainly been significant. Uh, we get the sense that it is increasing as well. So um, it has been about 2.9% per year, and it represents 70% of excess inflation. Of course, it's not the full story. So there's supply side as well. Um, and whilst it is significant and it's certainly relevant, it is, it's not the full story. It's not everything. So also, I think a lot of people focus on doctors and hospitals and what's happening in the supply side and, uh, and attributing a lot of the, the evils of medical inflation to, to that side of it. There's certainly something happening there, but it's not the full story. And it really is about uh, demographics in the end. Um, but effectively, the main drivers of supply-side inflation are it's, uh, new medical technologies, uh, increased radiology and pathology investigations, um, health professional billing and coding optimization, and some other supply-side factors. There's a whole lot of more factors on this side than there would be on the demographic side. And these things are not confined to South Africa. This is true across the board, across the world. Um, I remember seeing a presentation at, uh, at an IAA event in, in Hong Kong about the, uh, the cost of cancer and the cost of um, having insurance products for cancer and how dramatically that has increased across the whole of Asia. And the main reason identified there is that screening is better. So people start getting treatment for cancer a lot earlier than they used to, and the treatment is also better, so the cost of it lasts for a longer period of time and that increases the cost of the, of the cover dramatically. So these sort of things happens all the time. Um, it will continue to happen. Um, I mean, one of the things that, you, that people really have to think about, um, and I think we have to start thinking about it very quickly, is genomics and the way in which technology is now developing so that uh, medicine is becoming personalized to your genetic profile. Now, obviously, what that means is that people would get genetic testing what that means is that people would have a lot more information about their genetic predisposition to certain conditions. Uh, what it also means is that uh, very often, I think, disease will be caught a lot earlier than has been in the past. Uh, treatments will be a lot more specific to an individual, which means that treatments will be a lot more effective. So there are good and bad things about all of these things from an insurance perspective. Um, and I think we actually need to think about it quite urgently, what the implications are, um, because the technology is developing the background and soon it will hit the market. 
uh, where there will be a, a lot cheaper genetic profiling available to, for everybody. Um, and particularly for cancer sufferers, I think it would make a big difference. But be that as it may, um, there's a whole lot of high-cost technologies, um, you know, things such as TAVI, robotic surgery for prostate cancer. Um, but on some of, the, some of the more mundane things, you see trends over time as well. So what this graph shows is increasing use of ICU and high-care wards. Um, all of this is plan mix-adjusted and case mix-adjusted. So this is comparing people with the same disease profile over time. And you can see there how it has increased. The red is the high-care wards and the blue is the ICU wards. Um, and the percentage of events with at least one uh, day in high-care or ICU is in the line. And you can just see how that's increasing over time. Um, then, of course, there's high-cost drugs. Um, so you can see here uh, what the, the level of increase in high-cost drugs per life per month. That's in the gray bar. Um, and the proportion of members claiming for high-cost drugs um, and the proportion is really what one was worried about because that's also, that includes obviously the numerator and the denominator effect. Radiology and pathology, uh, it's not a problem unique to South Africa, but it is, it's increasing all the time. Um, one of the, the driving factors of that could be more litigation um, for doctors or on doctors in, in terms of uh, diagnosing disease uh, properly. Um, so if somebody else is paying for it especially, what is the barrier to a doctor just asking for more pathology? It just protects them uh, in case there's any questions later on. Um, the one thing uh, that is not uh, a cost driver um, is uh, non-health expense inflation. Um, and I think Council for Medical Schemes certainly over the years have, have succeeded in, in keeping the lid on non-health expenses. And you could see that across the industry. Um, so there, uh, inflation is the, is the dotted line. Um, for the industry, that's the red line. Um, for Discovery Health, uh, that's the blue line. And that's basically indicating that non-health expenses have increased at a lower rate than inflation, which, um, depending on your definition, you can say that that is effectively deflationary. It's lower than the average, so it brings the average level of uh, contribution increases down. So. This is basically, we put this in our, in our submission. If you look at it in RAND terms, um, you can see that when you compare 2008 contributions in discovery to 2013 contributions on a planned mix adjusted basis, uh, people paid more at 454 RAND per life per month in 2013 than they paid in 2008. Um, now, 273 RAND of that um, is CPI, which means that the excess inflation is 180 RAND. Um, and there you can see then that that is broken down into claims inflation of 192 Rand. Uh, solvency requirements in discovery over this period was 2 Rand 35. Um, that's because the solvency decreased over the period and then we had to back up to 25%. So in the later years it was said that it was more expensive. But NHG is minus 14 Rand. So that was a negative amount and that actually brought inflation down. Um, I should have actually included on the slide, but if you take claims, then you can break it down if you're 70% for demand side and 30% for supply side, as I said, and a little bit for tariffs as well. Um, but that's basically just how the equation breaks down. And I think uh, what, is, uh, the, what was certainly quite striking from reading through many of the submissions, um, I think uh, that, you know, MedScheme, for instance, made an excellent submission also to the Competition Commission, is that many of these factors, um, I think, are very consistent across the industry. Um, and people even talk about that from the service provider side and identifying that similar sort of factors are playing a role 
um, in increasing costs. So all of that brings us to low-cost benefit options. Um, I think, you know, if you look at it, uh, certainly the, the, the key assumption that we're making, and it seems to be uh, what, is, what is happening and what's confirmed by Paresh as well, um, is that it will be restricted to primary care benefits and a full PMB package will not be enforced. Now, if that is the case, the first things that we have to think about then, what are the drivers of volume utilization and what is the solution? So demographics, as I indicated, is the main driver. You have to think about demographics almost as the first priority. And if we don't solve the problems that we have with demographic inflation, uh, then basically this is not, it's a non-starter. We, we can't even launch this. Um, and the bottom line for that is mandatory risk pools. Now, obviously, you can't have a national mandate. Um, so what we're thinking, and I'll talk a little bit about it, is that it has to be mandated at employer level. That's the only way in which you can basically offer this product. The second one is supply side, um, and that's a secondary driver, but the bottom line there is tight networks. And the question of out-of-network out um, um, rights of members in these, in these options is very important because that will determine the cost um, in the end, and I'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, and then when it comes to premiums, uh, solvency requirements, um, in our view, there should be no need for the 25% requirement, and I'll give you some justification for that. But if the same requirement is, implied, is, is imposed on low-cost benefit options, again, it would make it unaffordable. So let's put down some numbers um, and some details. Uh, we think it is possible that you could have a package of minimum primary care benefits, um, including GP visits and medication, some other basic things as well, such as optometry and dentistry, um, and with very low administration fees to get to a cost of between 250 and 300 rand. Um, and Roseanne reminded us this morning about willingness to pay um, and the inflation adjustment. I, I worked out that you're basically talking about what people are willing to pay is uh, roughly 125 rand for this. Now, if that is the case, then actually it all falls into place because then if employers subsidize 50% of it, it means that 250 rand is actually what people are willing to pay in the end. So, you know, with employers, I think it's very important that the subsidy exists. Without employers, people are probably not willing to pay this, which probably means that the people who do take it up at individual level will be purely anti-selective. They'll get more out than what they pay in. So I think it is very important that to link up with, uh, the, I was reminded of those figures this morning, and I think it's important also in our thinking why there is such a big case then for making this mandate, mandate to employers. So um, the caveats are that we can only do this if the rest of the regulatory framework is in place. Um, we cannot provide cover at cost, so there has to be agreed tariffs. You cannot say that within this network, whatever the doctor charges, that is what we'll pay for. So it has to be within a tight network and a tight formulary. Um, and what we said there is that with no rights to out-of-network visits at cost, so the at-cost part there is very important. You can't say to people that if you don't go to your network doctor, you're going to any doctor, either in an emergency or because you're away from home. I think there's different levels of, of, of out-of-network um, uh, aspects to think about. So the one thing to think about is that if somebody lives in Johannesburg, but they go home for the holidays in Port Elizabeth, they can still go to a network doctor in Port Elizabeth but maybe not to an out-of-network doctor in Port Elizabeth. So those are the sort of distinctions that we can think about in the product design, because I think as long as we can restrict it to the network, we will be able to manage the cost. 
as soon as we have to introduce out-of-network visits, it does make the cost higher. Um, and it's possible to do it, but then the 250 rand is in question. Um, so, as I said, to avoid anti-selection, demographically driven inflation, uh, we think that open enrollment and guaranteed acceptance uh, the, cannot be offered at the outset. Maybe one day, uh, maybe hopefully within our lifetimes, if we have a large group of people covered on these things, then you can think about it again. You can look at it and look about what is the risk introduced if you now open it up to individual members as well. But certainly at the outset, this cannot be offered. So we think it is critically important to restrict cover to groups in formal employment for now. Um, and this, there's just a simple reason for that. When we look at our low-cost options uh, within discovery, and I think, again, this experience will be consistent across the industry, is that individuals are just much more expensive. Um, so in our case, 38% more expensive. We think that the groups must be at a reasonable size, so save 35-plus at the outset. But maybe, again, over time, you can bring that down to 20. Maybe over time, you can bring it down to 10. Um, but it is a big step to take it from a group to individual level. Um, and the other thing, of course, that's very important is access to payroll, because that would help us to verify that this is truly low-income people buying the product. Um, and the definitions in payroll is typically a lot simpler at the low-income range. So it would be possible then to say that this product is restricted to people earning below a certain level, and we think that that is very important. So without this protection, the costs increase quite dramatically. So you can see there, depending on which one of these things you, um, you relax, um, the cost goes up from 253 rand to 300. It becomes anything from 300 to 360 to 500 to 670 rand, depending on what your assumptions are on pensioners and people joining um, at an individual level. So effectively, you know, nobody would want these things at the outset because you want everybody to have access, but you can't give everybody access at that cost. It's just that that's the way the world works. So we have to make these choices as to at what levels we draw the lines. Um, but that's certainly our recommendations um, to keep it within the 250 to 300 rand range. Um, and again, you know, we see these sort of things being supported even if we look within low-cost benefit options within the schemes as they currently exist. Uh, we can see the differences between voluntary employers and mandatory employers. So we're um, in, the, in the context of key care within discovery. If an employer says to the employees, you have to join key care, and another employer says they don't. So you see there on the graph, it's unfortunately a bit difficult to see, uh, but the maternity rate for voluntary group is 60% higher than average, um, translating into a 55% higher cost per life because maternity is such an important benefit in this market. Um, and GP utilization cost is about 20% higher than that on compulsory groups. So again, the compulsory mandatory um, type, of, uh, type of rule is very important. So um, to avoid supply-side uh, inflation, we think that benefits can be offered inside the network and formulary only. Um, if there is to be out-of-network benefits, it has to be extremely tightly defined and controlled. Um, but we think the geographic issue can at least be dealt with by giving people access to out-of-geography but within network cover as well. Um, Low tariffs and prices can only be negotiated inside a network if members don't have rights to cover uh, at cost out of the network. Um, so doctors would only be willing to agree to the low tariffs if they can be sure of some volume of people coming to them. Um, interestingly, what we found, and I, I encourage you to, to look at the presentations that was done at the Indaba, um, because Joanne from PrimeCare did, did an excellent presentation there talking about how to manage 
um, doctor networks. Um, and I think it is very important that you have to think about it as a doctor, you have to follow an entirely different model of servicing people within a low-cost environment at these sort of tariff levels. Um, it is good quality of care, but it is different quality of care um, as to what your average Santon um, resident would be used to. You can't just go to any specialist, you can't demand certain things from doctors. It's good quality of care, but it is restricted. Um, and you have to have a sort of volume model and you have to think about these sort of uh, um, uh, the protocols uh, very carefully. And of course, it has to be attractive to the doctors, otherwise all of this falls flat. So the tariff still has to be sufficient that doctors find that they can run an economically viable practice um, and that they're comfortable to, to, to operate in that sort of um, environment as well. And there are doctors like that. Um, so we certainly find that also in practice when we talk to, to doctors operating in the low-income uh, environment. So innovative supply-side solutions can only work with guaranteed volumes. Um, and I think what's important about this is that we look at, when we look at supply-side models across the world, um, when you have large numbers of people, a lot of interesting things become far more viable. So things such as cataract surgery can be done very cheaply if it's done in a standardized form, uh, form in, a, in a hospital specializing only in that. Uh, maternity probably can offer some clever solutions over time. Critical thing there is to have enough people so that you can talk to the suppliers and that you can convince them to do medicine in a different way. Um, and then you can offer something of value to, to members over time as well. So um, we think that if a scheme has a 25% solvency level under the current regulations, um, and provided the members, membership of this option doesn't exceed 20% of the total membership base, there should be no reason for additional solvency requirements. So if you look at the solvency of that scheme overall, it would obviously drop below 25% on that definition. But we're saying that in practice it shouldn't matter. That scheme would typically still um, be very much uh, financially viable and financially secure. Um, but effectively, um, obviously, the, for, for purposes, regulatory purposes and publication purposes, that scheme would have to recognize as meeting the solvency requirement. Um, of course, when we talk about risk-based capital, when we move to a different risk-based capital environment, then all of this can be reconsidered in the context of risk-based capital. But fundamentally, you won't get different answers. If it's a, if it's a proper risk-based type of capital requirement, um, then it should automatically give you the right answer in any event. But imposition of a 25% requirement means that effectively all the numbers you've seen has to be divided by 0.75 or multiplied by 1.33, and then that would be the contribution required. So that just on its own, the 250 or 300 becomes 333 to 400 rand. Um, and it seems silly. So if we have to impose this additional cost, especially in the context of a scheme that already meets the requirements, um, it doesn't seem to be very effective. So um, we think that a low-cost benefit option is within reach for 250 Rand to 300 Rand. Um, I can state here that Discovery is certainly very interested in this, um, and we, uh, we would like to talk to Council and to the industry to make sure that there's a sort of viable framework in place. Um, but we are enthusiastic about this, that if the framework falls in place, that we would certainly consider it very seriously. Um, it does require a special regulatory dispensation and certainty about that regulatory dispensation. Um, but we think without protection against anti-selection with a 25% solvency requirement, the absolute minimum contribution to 250 Rand is 396 Rand, and it can be as high as 800 Rand. So those are the two most important things. 
to deal with the, the demographics and to deal with solvency, that basically brings down the cost. And that's it for me. Thanks. I know we're well into the tea time, but I don't know if there's any questions. One at the back. Mario Stratum, hi. Excellent presentation. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I was wondering, have you put your mind at all uh, into looking at the broader NHI? Do you think there is a possibility that the NHI could be administered at those kind of cost levels, um, theoretically? Because then it might actually be affordable. I think in theory, but I guess with, with the NHI, there's, there's a whole lot of other questions that come into, into play. Um, the first one is, uh, you know, do you effectively get a mandate across the population so that everybody participates um, in the same environment? Now, that's quite hard to ensure, actually, um, I think. Uh, also because of a whole lot of population issues and porous borders and all those, uh, all those sort of uh, questions. So the first thing is about the risk pool and how stable that is. Uh, the second thing is about doctors. So um, I think what I alluded to is that, you know, it needs a different doctor solution. Um, there aren't that many doctors in South Africa, but we think within the sort of contained private sector environment, there are, it's certainly possible that you could find enough doctors who are willing to look at different models of delivering healthcare, and then it becomes viable. If you do this at a population level, then the whole doctor question becomes something entirely different. Um, and uh, you know, then it becomes harder to, to collaboratively develop those sort of models, and then it becomes all about the tariff to pay to doctors, and that again puts, puts a big question mark onto it. Um, but I think obviously the, the you know the NHI um, NHI is used in very broad terms um, as a as a terminology, um, and it seems as if a lot of the work that the Department of Health is doing is focused actually on hospital care and delivering primary care in public facilities, and to that extent all of those sort of things will be very complementary to this, um, and would actually just help to make the whole system working better and more sustainable. So the two must interact at some level. Um, I'm not sure that this model applied in the NHI would actually give you the same results. I, d I doubt it. Um, Emil, it's yeah. uh, Rosani from MedScheme. I want to test a statement. Um, young people opt out of the medical schemes environment. Um, I find I'm beginning to think that that, that is a bit problematic because is that not consistent with the economic structure? Um, we know that. Um, the, the, the corporates do introduce a level of mandatory cover because they do require their employees to be, to, to be part of a medical scheme. So if, if we're saying that young people are opting out, we, we're basically saying young people are, are self-employed. And, 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 and I wonder whether that is true. Um, I would expect that the older people become, uh, the more people you will get that are actually self-employed and therefore the, the individual rate amongst older people should be expected to be much higher. And, and older people cannot opt out because they need the cover. Younger people do not necessarily need the cover, but I think the majority of those that are working or, or can afford to be on a medical scheme um, would be part of a corporate um, and, and, and therefore would not necessarily be able to opt out. So, so that could be an indication that at those levels, the young people are actually perhaps not employed and can therefore not afford to be, to be part of that. So I just want to test that. I want to test whether what, what my, my, my thoughts around that are correct. And, and, and linked to that, um, you know, there's a saying that, you know, the, the tallest trees do catch the most wind. And um, 
I wonder whether the, the sort of kind of uh, noise um, that, that, that perhaps Discovery is making now about the aging profile is just getting louder and louder now than before um, when perhaps there was a bit of a bumper crop that, of younger people that, that, that the Discovery was getting at that point because uh, Discovery was perhaps um, you know, more innovative uh, compared to the, to the industry and therefore attracting more of the younger people and that pool is uh, being exhausted and, and therefore now you know, this, it's a bit of a, a cry for help and for maybe the legislations to step in um, and, and whether the, the solution to that should be more, more innovation to, 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 for the industry. It's a challenge for discovery for the industry to be more innovative to, to get those young people in. Or we just have to make do with the economic structure that just doesn't have enough young people working. So the, I'm not sure if your second question is, a, is an accusation or a compliment. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think it might be both. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think to an extent you're right. Uh, I think if you look at, uh, you know, let's start with discovery and its history. Uh, before the Medical Schemes Act, uh, the new Medical Schemes Act in 1999 was implemented, it was a very different environment. Um, and I think at that point, uh, I, was at, I started working in health insurance in 1995. At that point, everything was, it was possible to risk rate. Um, everybody understood, um, if you had any sort of actuarial training, that the best thing to do is to get young and healthy people onto a medical scheme. Um, and, uh, you know, you could risk rate as well, so, you know, it wasn't such a big issue if you had older and unhealthy people on the medical scheme, but still you wanted young and healthy members on the medical scheme. And it's, quite frankly, it's the same in the UK, where we can risk rate, where we operate there. Um, it's still very important you know, what the profile is, because you can never completely risk rate in any event. You can't, you can't possibly rate for older people's uh, the cost. But be that as it may, when the Medical Schemes Act came in and uh, it said that we now have community rating, guaranteed acceptance and open enrollment, then the demographic profile just became that much more important. So at that point, uh, with Vitality, I think Discovery certainly launched something that was very good for them. Um, it's, you can also argue that it's good for the market because it at least retained people inside the market at that point in time, um, and it helped to moderate inflation levels at that point in time. Um, all of the numbers I'm showing you here is 2008 to 2013. We are talking sort of 15 years later now in any event, and these are the factors that are relevant now. Um, I think when we look at the numbers, and it's obviously hard for us to say, but I think that the, the effect that we're experiencing within Discovery is still a bit smaller than what you see in the rest of the industry. So if anything, um, you know, we should be the least worried, but actually it is such a significant effect even to us that we think that this is a systemic issue um, that we have to deal with as an industry. Uh, but uh, it is interesting to me when I talk to people in the international actuarial um, community that they just they cannot believe the regulatory framework that we have. Guaranteed acceptance, open enrollment and community rating without a mandate it just doesn't work, and especially not with, without risk equalization. So um, in the end, you can't escape these, these sort of underlying actuarial dynamics. It will manifest, and it will manifest in this. So again, as a society, we have to make a choice. Do we pay more, but we give everybody access with sort of no restrictions as to when they join? Um, or do we, we say to people, it's actually your responsibility to join early enough, um, and then everybody pays less? And those are the choices we have to make. 
Which brings me back to your first question, which is about the reasons young people opt out of medical schemes. Um, I mean, I think there's a whole lot of things in there. There, there are young people on medical schemes. As you can see there, it's just less than what, in the, what is in the population. Um, and I think unemployment certainly um, is weighted towards the young as well. So you would find the people who are in informal employment unemployment for, probably fall uh, more predominantly on the left-hand side, and that could explain some of the reason. Um, but there's no doubt, and, and we know this also when we look at employer data, um, that you can see that even in employers where, there's some, where, where the employer says that it is compulsory, that people still choose to opt out. Um, by saying, for argument's sake, I'm on my husband's medical scheme, or actually just not following the rules that HR has. Uh, we find that even within discovery staff, that there are people who are not on discovery medical scheme. Um, and, you know, it's always a big issue when you say to those people, well, you have to join. So it's not easy to convince people at young ages to join medical schemes. Um, I mean, just think about a whole sector of the economy, people who work in coffee shops or in art galleries or... Uh, you know, in small sort of businesses. Um, when I speak to some of those people, medical insurance is just not on the radar. You know, it starts becoming part of their, their thinking when they start about thinking about a family. And that's where you find that sort of maternity effect that I also um, um, said. So I think you're right. We need, we need clever solutions to this in any event. We need ways to encourage young, healthy people to join medical schemes and to stay there. Um, what it might mean is that you need some sort of incentive for them to join. Now, that's again where the regulatory framework becomes tricky because of all of the rules uh, relating to incentive payments. But these are the sort of things that could help us to solve this problem. Um, but at the moment, I'm just stating the fact. This is what increases costs, not only for us, but for the whole industry. Um, and you see this not being a big effect only in the, in the sort of closed schemes environment, but actually for most closed schemes, it's also an effect um, because of the way in which employment is changing in South Africa and how those populations are aging within employment uh, bases as well. So, um, you know, I think in many ways you're right. There's probably just a little bit more nuances to it. Um, but in the end, uh, you find that at the margin, if we had everybody in employment on medical schemes, everybody in formal employment on medical schemes, I think, Barry, you did some work on that. If I remember correctly, it would drop the cost for everybody by around 13%, 13-14%. That's significant. And that's a once-off change that if you think about that effect over 10, 20 years, you know, that would make a massive difference to what people pay in the end. Yeah, yeah. Question. Uh, Charlton. Sorry, sorry, the, the mic was with Andre, I didn't see. Sorry, Charlton. Yeah, my question is closely related to access and restrictions. And you are suggesting that it should be restricted to employer groups. Uh, in my view, the reason why funeral assurance has been so accessible uh, and successful is it's because it's easily accessible. It's open and it's cheap, and people see the value of it. And uh, with the low-cost benefit option, I think there's very little doubt that the people we are targeting will see value in it. But I think uh, the moment we try to restrict it to employer groups, we are creating a restriction uh, because it's going to be more difficult for, for people to join. But if we open it up more, it will improve possibly the numbers and bringing the cost down. Um, have you considered that view or, or not? 
No, I think it's a good question. I think the, the answer to it is um, that it can actually be just thinking on the on my feet here. The answer probably to it is probably the premium. So for funeral insurance, the cost of it is much much lower than the cost of medical insurance. So it is it, if somebody values a dignified funeral and they have to pay for arguments like I don't know what the premium levels are, but 20 rand or 50 rand a month, 60 then it's a much smaller decision than paying 250 or 300 rand. Um, and particularly if you don't go to the doctor. Right, so um, I mean we find that situation in medical insurance all the time and it's the same across the world. You know, people just can't understand. I've paid, I've paid 30,000 rand a year for my medical cover and yet when I go to the doctor and I take um, not the statin on your formulary, but another statin, you insist that I make a 20 rand co-payment. People just don't understand that because I paid 30,000 rand, but we don't want to pay bloody 20 rand for this medication more. Um, I mean, it's always difficult to explain those dynamics, um, but that is the central dynamic here. So the, the, the anti-selective pressure in health insurance is very, very different to funeral insurance. And that's why we see it in our numbers already and you will see it in low-cost benefit options that if you don't introduce restrictions at the start, it will be unaffordable. It's the bottom line. Yeah. So, so maybe just to, to repeat that everybody can hear what Charlton is saying that, you know, people who go to public clinics that cost them two days, they lose income, it costs them 500 rand just to go to a clinic. I think the the, the answer there is basically it's if you are sick, like if you're healthy, you don't go to the clinic and you don't think about the clinic. Um, and maybe if you're sick only once and you go to a clinic, it's maybe not that, it's not so bad, right? If you have to pay 250 to 300 rand every month, in other words, 3,600 rand a year or 3,000 rand a year, then that equation becomes different, right? Then you might decide not to join if you go to the doctor only once a year and it costs you 500 rand. So, so that's why we do see the anti-selective effects. Guess what I'm, so what I'm saying to you is that in the end you can't escape from it. Um, and we won't launch this product if there's no protection against it because we just think that it won't be viable. Okay, thanks. I think people are thirsty. Uh, we'll do one last question. Sorry for those who are missing out. You can speak to Emil in the break. Um, <clears throat> Hi, Emil. Andre from Insight. Um, I'll try to keep it short. Um, sort of what I believe that sort of implicit to the argument that um, these options shouldn't be required to build reserves um, is that they must be self-sustaining and that any cross-subsidization should be limited. Um, do you agree? Yes. Yes. So the, the, the underlying assumption, a very important point, sorry, I should have said it and thanks for that, is that you don't make losses on these options. Now, obviously, there could be some variability in it. Um, as long as the losses remain small, um, then it's not too much of a problem. But there's no assumption here that the rest of the scheme will give a big cross-subsidy to these options. Um, and if it is, then solvency becomes more relevant and the financial dynamics again change completely. Okay, so thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks Emil.